Hey, this is part nine. This is the longest series we've ever presented at Forest Park. Uh, I've enjoyed each week. Lana did a fantastic job last week. Preston brought a great message a couple of weeks ago, so they've been helping me to bring the parables to life over this series um, over the last few uh, weeks. If you are just joining us today, maybe you're watching online for the first time, or maybe you're coming in here, uh, maybe you've missed the last few weeks, or you haven't been with us at all, I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel and check out the first part uh, of this series, the first uh, eight parts. I think you'll learn a lot, grow a lot, and be challenged a lot as you walk your way uh, through it. I hope, hopefully you've learned. I know I have in studying and preparing this. Uh, I've grown a lot, and I've been challenged a lot as well. Well, I'm ending this series today with possibly the most challenging parable we've covered. Not challenging because it's difficult to present, but challenging because the application of this parable messes everything up. All right, so here's, here's what I want to do. I want to go to the parable. I'm going to make a few comments, uh, kick us all in the spiritual teeth, and then I'll dismiss, and you can go eat chicken or whatever you're going to have for lunch, okay? That's fair, right? All right. Now, before we walk through this parable, I want to ask a huge question as we begin uh, this message today, and here's the question. Where do we draw the line between a follower of Jesus and a fan of Jesus? Now, maybe another way of asking that is where do we draw a line between a disciple and a spectator, between someone who participates in bringing God's kingdom to life and someone who simply admires parts and pieces of God's kingdom. Now, if you would have asked me this question a few years ago, here's what I would have said. I would have said, I draw the line between people who have faith in the gospel, because it's by faith we're saved, and those who do not have faith in the gospel. And I would have been correct, but incomplete in my answer, okay? It's not faith in the gospel if you define faith as merely believing the gospel, an intellectual assent to the story of Jesus, the fact he lived, died, was raised from the dead. You know, we ask for forgiveness, you fill in the blank, you kind of make a list of all the things you're supposed to believe as a Christian. Many people who are ineffective in God's kingdom believe the gospel story. They could take a test and they would pass it. They could take a true and false multiple choice test about the gospel. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Is this true? Is this false? And they would pass it. But it has made little to no difference in their life and in the lives of people around them whatsoever. So today, if you ask me this question, I will give you a more complete answer. And I'm sure that I will continue to learn, continue to grow, and continue to modify this answer in the years to come. But where I am right now, here's how I answer the question. I answer it this way. I draw the line between those who have a kind of faith. It's a quality of faith. It's not just any faith, but it's the kind of faith in the gospel that changes their direction, realigns their values, rearranges their commitments, and shifts their loyalties from all other kingdoms to the kingdom of God and those who do not. That's where I put the line between those who just have an intellectual assent to it and those who actually follow Jesus. Those who allow the gospel to completely rearrange realign, reprioritize, shift everything inside of them from one kingdom to the kingdom of Christ. 
So if one does not have that kind of faith, that quality of faith, then he or she is merely watching what's going on. Now I wanna hang that kind of up in the air, keep that there as we walk through this parable today. And if I do a decent job, if I get at least a C today, okay, on this message, hopefully you'll see the connection between this and the parable as we get deeper into it. All right, today's parable is found in Luke chapter 16. I'm going to begin at verse 9, but I'm not going to read the entire entirety from 9 to 31, but I will read a lot of it, kind of skip a little bit around, and you'll see the connection because I want to say some preliminary, read some preliminary scriptures and passages before we get to the heart of the parable. Here's what Jesus says in beginning verse 9 of Luke 16. He says, I tell you, this is Jesus talking, Use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into the eternal homes. Just give them some wisdom about what to do with your wealth. You can do it wisely, you can do it unwisely. Here's some wise things to do with your wealth. He goes on. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much. And the one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to one and have contempt for the other. And then he just like drops this bombshell. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let me ask you a question, because that's a huge statement. How well do you think this comment, you cannot serve God and wealth, how well do you think this comment would go over in our Western culture today? You cannot serve God and wealth. I want you to imagine gathering wealthy people in this room on a Sunday, and the entire message is you cannot serve God and money, and then at the end, receive an offering. Talking about ticking people off, I would not be a favorite of a lot of people if that's what I did. Now, here's what I want us to do. I want us to skip down to verse 19, and you're going to see how this comments up here at the front, and then down to verse 19, how the parable that Jesus brings to us connects everything we've said so far. Jesus begins a story like this. There was a certain rich man who had clothed himself in purple and fine linen and who feasted luxuriously every day. Let's pause right there. This is important. The rich man did nothing considered sinful, immoral, cruel, or inhumane by virtually no one in a prosperous and wealthy society. Nobody in a prosperous and wealthy society would look at this guy and judge him guilty of one thing. Listen to how Jesus describes this guy. This guy is a rich man who clothes himself in purple and fine linen. That was just a way at that time of saying he dresses really nicely. He dresses stylishly. He dresses in expensive clothes. He takes care of what he puts on. He dresses himself in really nice clothes and he enjoys lush food. In the USA, this guy would be featured on TikTok and Instagram 
possibly have his own channel on YouTube teaching others how to achieve his level of success, how to become wealthy early in life. He would have 10 steps to retiring by 35 and, you know, sign up for my channel. I'm going to tell you how to skip over so many years that your parents had to put in. I'm going to do what I can to help you become wealthy like me as early as you possibly can. And all of you who follow TikTok and Instagram know exactly what I'm talking about. You come across people like that all the time. Those who are successful early, those who achieve a lot of money through multi-level businesses, Airbnbs, uh, flipping houses or land or even adult activities, which right now are super popular and people are making tons of money every month. They are our heroes in this particular culture. We would look at this guy and go, man, that guy's got it going on. He's figured it out. He's cracked the code. He's young, he's wealthy, wears nice clothes, eats great food. He's the kind of guy that our young people, our teenagers and our early 20 year olds want to become like as quickly as they possibly can. So listen, this is very important before we go any further into the story. When we read this story, do not imagine this man as being the Jeff Bezos or the Elon Musks of our world. Think wealthy people who have more than they need. Define this guy as someone who has a lot more than he actually needs. In fact, you pass people like this every day. You live beside people like this every day. In fact, you probably are sitting close to people like this right now. In fact, some of us in this room, we are this guy right here. In fact, some of us have more money than we know what to do, so we build a house just for our cars. We expand our rooms in our house to put more clothes in. We have so much food that we can't put it all in our refrigerator, so we buy another refrigerator and put it in the garage and so we can put more food out there. We have to have an entire building dedicated to hold our money because we can't keep it safely at home, so we put it in a bank or a credit union. We have more money, more things, more than we know what to do with. And when we get more, we say, let's build more. Let's get more. Every time we collect more, we spend more. So don't think of this guy as being this really, you know, extravagantly rich person across our nation. No, no. Think about this person as someone who has more than he knows what to do with it. And the reason I emphasize this is because when we read a parable like this, we tend to disqualify ourselves from being this rich man. We say things like this, oh, this guy was really rich and stingy and mean, not like us. Well, let me ask you a question. What about this verse tells you he was stingy and mean? It doesn't say anything about him being stingy. It says he was a certain rich man who clothed himself with nice clothes and ate great food. It doesn't say anything about him being stingy or mean. It just describes a particular rich man who had a lot. Now the parable goes on. And at his gate lay a certain poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Instead, dogs would come and lick his sores. How gruesome is that image? Again, this is extremely important. Nothing in the parable says the poor man was moral or hardworking or lazy. 
It doesn't say anything about him being a drug addict. It doesn't say anything about him being a religious man. It puts no morality within this man. It says nothing about his character, nothing about what he believes. It doesn't say if he's generous. It doesn't say if he's godly. It doesn't say if he's immoral. It does nothing but simply say he was poor and had a lot of needs. That's it. Nothing specific. Again, we tend to think of this man as a good, upright, moral person who happens to be poor. But nothing in this parable says anything about his morality, his religious persuasion, whether he is uh, godly or ungodly. It doesn't say anything about the rich man being the same way. The only thing this parable tells us is that one has a lot and one doesn't. One has more than he knows what to do with and one has so little he suffers in life. You see, we want to make this rich man bad and this poor man good. And the reason we want to assign qualities to them and characteristics to them and morality to them is because if we can, somehow we take the sting out of this parable. Because we say, well, I'm not like the rich man. I know people who are, you know, like the poor man and they're good. And I know a lot of wealthy, stingy, mean people. And we separate them in categories and then we remove ourselves from the parable and the stinger has been removed. The only difference in these two, huge, one is wealthy and has all his needs met. One is poor and ignored. That's it. That's the only thing Jesus says about these two. He goes on. The poor man died and is carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in the place of the dead, he, the rich man, looked up and saw Abraham at a distance with Lazarus at his side. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm suffering in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted and you are in great pain. This is so interesting to me. This man, this rich man recognized Abraham. He knew enough about the importance of Abraham to ask for help. He understood mercy and compassion. So this guy must have had at least a surface level of religion. He must have understood the Jewish culture enough to know who Abraham was, how important Abraham was, and pleaded for mercy and compassion. So this guy is not ignorant about mercy and compassion. He is not ignorant about who Abraham is. And also notice this, in the afterlife, he still saw the poor man Lazarus as his servant. He wants Abraham to send Lazarus to go get him some water. He doesn't say, uh, let me go get water. He doesn't say, let me go get water for other people. No, no, he says, even in the afterlife, hey, hey Abraham, uh, have mercy on me and you tell Lazarus to keep serving me. And that's when Abraham comes back and says, child, remember, during your lifetime, you received all the good things and Lazarus received terrible things. Now he's comforted and you're in pain. There's this reversal going on here. The only thing, not morality, not religion, 
Not anything good in the poor man or bad in the rich man. Just in this life, the rich man had everything and the poor man had nothing. And now in the afterlife, it's backwards. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And Abraham goes on. Moreover, a great crevice has been fixed between us and you. Those who wish to cross over from here to there, from here to you cannot, neither can anyone cross from there to us. The rich man said, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He needs to warn them so they don't come to this place of agony. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will change their hearts and lives. Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Notice the rich man isn't any different in the afterlife than he is in this one. He still thinks Lazarus serves him. He's still asking for people to help him. He wants his family saved. No request to anybody else's family. He only thinks about relief to his own suffering. He continues to want comfort even in the afterlife. Even though he's lived a life of comfort in this one, he wants more comfort in the next life. Now here's a huge point before I move any further. I'm paraphrasing Jesus here. Even a miracle like a resurrection won't change people who don't want to be changed. Folks, if, if your brothers, this is, this is what Jesus was saying to the rich man, if your brothers won't listen to truth and reason and pleas for compassion and love and mercy to help the poor, a great experience like a resurrection won't change them. They'll just excuse it away. Even a great experience like a resurrection will not change the heart of someone who doesn't want to be changed. All right, here's what we have. We have a wealthy man who is enjoying his life now, ignoring a poor man who is miserable with his life now. They both die and everything is reversed in the life to come. And the parable ends. That's it. Jesus packs up and goes home. He doesn't take questions. He doesn't clarify anything. He drops it. The people sitting there are stung by this. They're scratching their heads. They're asking questions. What does this mean? How, am I like that? Am I the rich man? Am I the poor man? What am I supposed to do? He just drops this parable and it's over. And here's what I've learned. We want to fill in the gaps with how we understand religion. We want to make the rich man a bad person. Well, I, I know why. I know why this happened, okay? It has nothing to do with his big house and car and clothes and food and all the money he has. It doesn't have anything to do with that. He was a bad man. And I, yes, yes, I've got all the clothes and food and cars and, and money and everything, but I'm a good man. See how we do? And we want to make the poor man a good person. See, the, re the reason why he ends up with Abraham is because he was poor, but he must have been good. See, we like to put our spin of religion, laws and, 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 and how we live and what we think and our assent to certain things about religion, and that's what makes everybody either go there or go there and all of that. 
What does this have to do with us? A lot. A lot. A few years ago, I picked up the book, The Hole in the Gospel. It's written by a hero of mine, Richard Stearns, former president of World Vision. Richard served 23 years in the corporate world. Successful at a young age, named president of Parker Brothers Games at 33, and eventually became president and CEO of Linux. He holds a bachelor's degree in neurobiology from Cornell University, an MBA from the University of Pennsylvania. But somehow in the middle of all the success and money and building and traveling, God grabbed his soul, revolutionized his heart, and Richard's perspective on everything shifted. Richard resigned his position at Linux in 1998 and became World Vision's U.S. president. And in his book, this book here, Richard tells the following story. And I'm going to read this story to you because I want you to experience a little bit of what I experienced when I jumped into this a few years ago. This is Richard Stern's writing. He says, his name was Richard, the same as mine. I sat inside his meager thatch hut listening to his story told to the tears of an orphan whose parents had died of AIDS. At 13, Richard was trying to raise his two younger brothers by himself in this small shack with no running water, electricity, or even beds to sleep in. There were no adults in the lives, no one to care for them, feed them, love them, or teach them how to become men. There was no one to hug them either or to tuck them in at night. Other than his siblings, Richard was alone as no child should be. I tried to picture my own children abandoned in this kind of deprivation, fending for themselves without parents to protect them, and I cannot. I didn't want to be there. I was supposed to be there. I was supposed to be far away from this place, not out of my comfort zone, the place where orphan children live by themselves in agony. There, poverty, disease, and squalor had eyes and faces, and it stared back. And I had to see and smell and touch the pain of the poor. That particular district, Rakai, this is a picture of where it's located in Uganda. It's believed to be ground zero for the Ugandan AIDS pandemic. This is where he met little Richard, who's 13. There, the deadly virus has stalked its victims in the dark for decades. Sweat trickled down my face as I sat awkwardly with Richard and his brothers while a film crew captured every tear. This is the community that Richard's writing about. I much preferred living in my bubble, the one that until that moment had safely contained my life, family, and career. It kept difficult things like this out, insulating me from anything too raw or upsetting. When such things intruded as they rarely did, a channel could be changed, a newspaper page could be turned, or even a check could be written to keep the poor at a safe distance. But not in Rakai. There, such things had faces and names, even my name, Richard. Not 60 days earlier, I had been CEO of Linux, America's finest tableware company producing and selling luxury goods to those who could afford them. 
I live with my wife and five children in a 10 bedroom house on five acres just outside of Philadelphia. I drove a Jaguar to work every day and my business travel took me to places such as Paris, Tokyo, London, and Florence. I flew first class and stayed in the best hotels. I was respected in my community, attended a suburban church and sat on the board of my kids' Christian school. I was one of the good guys. You might say a poster child for the successful Christian life. I had never been to Rock Eye, the place where my bubble would burst. But in just 60 days, God turned my life inside out and I would never be the same. Quite unexpectedly, eight months earlier, I had been contacted by World Vision, the Christian Relief and Developmental Organization, during their search for a new president. Why me? It wasn't something I sought after. In fact, you might say I had been minding my own business when the phone rang that day. But it was a phone call that had been nearly 24 years in the planning. You see, in 1974, at the age of 23 in my graduate school dormitory, I knelt beside my bed and dedicated my life to Christ. This was no small decision for me, and it came only after months of reading, studying, conversations with friends, and the important witness of Renee, the woman who would later become my wife. Well, at the time, I I knew very little about the implications of the decision. I knew this. Nothing would ever be quite the same again because I had made a promise to follow Christ no matter what. I picked up Richard's book a couple of months uh, before we left to go to Ecuador a few years ago. And I began to read the book slowly and it grabbed my heart. And I decided, hey, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna uh, finish the book on the long flight to Ecuador while we're sitting in some of the airports. So I stuck it in my carry-on and about 30 minutes into the flight, a plane got up, leveled off. They said, you can take out your electronics now. You know, the little speech they give. I grabbed my book, I opened it up, and my mind and heart were open to several realities that I had not considered, nor had anybody framed for me so clearly. In chapter 15, Richard points out that as a nation of Christians, we are blessed. I mean, never has there ever been a nation with more educational opportunities, financial resources, technological advances, Bible study materials, training seminars, books, music. With our economic struggles, even those that we've had recently, we continue to be a prosperous nation. And the church in America has got to confront the challenge of being endowed with an abundance of blessings in an extremely poor world. Now, as I was reading and trying to digest what he was saying, I realized that many of us in the USA, we have a difficult time seeing the world as extremely poor. I mean, it's difficult to do when we sit in front of our big screen TVs, sip iced tea, peruse socials, or gawk at half-dressed people. Even sitting here, This morning, in our air-conditioned church with cushioned seats, some of us can't wait to leave and get on our boats or flip on our TVs or start our barbecues or get in our beds. It's difficult to imagine that billions of people don't live the same way we do. Most of our world is poor. Millions of people will try to sleep tonight fighting hunger pains. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you've ever gone to bed hungry Not not because you were trying to lose weight because you ate so much before, but I mean, you looked through your house to find something to eat and you had nothing and you had to go to bed 
hungry. Now, folks, my, my goal today is not to make you feel guilty. You'll say, Scott, well, you're, you're accomplishing a goal you haven't even set for yourself. You're overshooting. That, that's not my goal. My goal is to awaken us to reality and make a parable that Jesus told us alive. Maybe this will help. It helped me. Maybe this will help. Richard describes two different churches in our world. The first church he calls the Church of God's Blessing. It's a suburban congregation in middle America. This church has been blessed by God, growing to just in 10 years from a small group of founding members to 3,000 people strong. Today, after much hard work, they got a beautiful new facility with a sanctuary holding 1,500 people, a resource center housing Sunday school classes and youth programs and a church library and administrative offices. And this church is in a prosperous area. It's drawn hundreds of professionals from law and medicine. Many of the booming up uh, 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 corporations in the area, people come in from those corporations and file in on Sunday mornings. The annual Christmas pageant has been one of the key outreach events for the church and Each year, hundreds of people hear the gospel through festive music and drama. The list of offerings on the church bulletin, quite impressive. Bible studies, apologetic courses, premarital seminars, divorce recovery sessions, aerobics classes, support groups for substance abuse, depression, cancer patients, and their families, parents of teenagers. There's also group activities for seniors, singles, single parents, college students, young professionals, young parents. And on this particular Sunday, the parking lot begins to fill for the first of three morning worship services. The first service features traditional hymns and organ music. The second service is contemporary music. The third service is a blend of both. The choir that morning is impressive with 60 voices raised to praise God. And more than likely, the church of God's blessings is not even aware that another church exists thousands of miles away. He calls that the church of the suffering servant. This is actually a church. The church is a small congregation of 50 meeting under a shade tree because they have no building. Its members live a simple life of survival as they work the land to provide food that they need to live. There's pain within the members of the church born of illness and hardship. They're all acquainted with grief. They've endured two decades of civil war in their country due to political instability. Food is scarce. The children often go to bed hungry. Clean water is not available, and two-hour treks to the water hole may quench their thirst, but it also brings disease because they have to drink the water. It's not unusual for children to die from simple diarrhea or for mothers to die in childbirth, and there's a growing uh, death rate for AIDS from AIDS. It's left so many children orphaned. But it's Sunday. And this small community comes together for worship and to celebrate the gospel. Such good news, such amazing news that God loves them and sent his son to die for their sins. Think about it. Save them in their brokenness. Grant them eternal life with him. This little congregation breaks into spontaneous and jubilant singing and praise as they contemplate these promises of God. So much comfort, so much love. The service ends But the singing continues as families disperse and walk together back to their homes. Neither church is aware of the other one. Now here's a question that really grabbed my attention. What if we could connect the leaders 
of these two churches for just a few minutes on one Sunday morning? What if we could bring the leaders of these two churches together? I want you to imagine that you, you are the pastor of the church on the right, the church of the suffering servant. And through an amazing set of circumstances, you're transported to America on a Sunday morning to visit the church on the left. Imagine how awestruck you would be as you entered the parking lot and you saw all these shiny cars and the great church building with thousands of God's people streaming in. You've never dreamed of such prosperity, never imagined a church so grand your heart leaps at the notion that you've discovered a group of fellow believers and now they're gonna be able to help your poor congregation during their suffering. Seated there, you begin to pray. Prayers of hope as you think about what you will say to these brothers and sisters packed into this place on this Sunday morning and you'll be able to explain your need to all these people and you know they will jump to help you. After the last song, you walk to the front of the sanctuary, you move to the podium and you're just getting ready to speak, a speech you've prepared, a prayer you've got ready to pray and before one word comes out of your mouth, the people begin to leave. Everyone files out, they go to their shiny cars and in a few minutes the whole parking lot's emptied, everybody's in a hurry to get to a local restaurant. You sit on the edge of the platform and you wonder aloud, why would they listen? Why they leave so quickly? Can you see the problem? Here's the thing, and this is gonna connect now, back to the parable. And if I do a decent job, you're gonna see the connection. The American church in this scenario, wasn't a bad church. They weren't mean. They weren't stingy. They just had fine linen and lots of, lots of luxurious food. They weren't bad. They were just oblivious to the suffering of the little church. It wasn't that they wouldn't help the struggling congregation. I think they probably would have. It's just that they were so focused on what they were doing and what they were accomplishing and what they had to do that afternoon, they never even gave time to listen. They had programs, they had systems. They couldn't see the church for their church. You see, I'm not, I'm not sure the rich man in the parable was a bad man. The parable doesn't say anything about his heart, only his actions. And that's what Jesus was trying to get across to those people that day. Belief matters, sure. But belief without action is dead. The rich man might have been a pretty good guy on the front of magazines, a hero in the community but absolutely blind to the poor man at his gate. But what if suddenly you could be elevated high enough that you could see both churches at the exact same time? The Church of God's Blessings was a 60-member choir and hundreds of car in the park, cars in the parking lot and the Church of the Suffering Servant sitting under a shade tree. What would you say to each church? Would you look at the church with all the bells and whistles and say, good job! And then look at the church under the shade tree and say, stinks to be you. Of course you wouldn't. 
That's not what you would say. You, you, you would say to the small struggling congregation, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm gonna get you some help. And then you would go to the church in America and tell them about the poor struggling church and you would say, hey, take some of your abundance. Keep your church, that's great. All your air conditioning and seated cushion seats and all the choir, that's all wonderful. But I'm sure that you have some extra. Take some extra and I got a place where you can invest it. I got a place where you can give it. I know some people who need some help. I think that's what I would do. I think that's what you would do. That's certainly how the early church did it. You do know that when the first church launched in Acts, when Jesus set it in motion and it just, it exploded, it wasn't about building a large congregation. You know that, right? It wasn't about how big they could become. It had nothing to do with great music and slick preaching. It wasn't about the coffee in the lobby or what the pastor was wearing. No one cared how easy it was to get in and out of the parking lot or how long or short the sermon was. No one asked, are my kids being entertained so I can sit on my behind in an air-conditioned room? Nobody thought like that. I hope they sing my favorite song. You see, all of that and a lot longer list, that's what I call rich man talk. That, that, that's purple and fine linen talk. That's feasting luxuriously talking. That's stepping over the poor man at the gate talk. For the early church, it was about taking the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere and welcoming different cultures into the body of Christ. It was about them changing so that other people could be welcomed. It was about them laying down some of their own traditions so other people could get in. It was about making the table longer and wider so more people could sit around the table and hear the good news. It was about loving people and serving people and meeting the needs of one another. It was about providing a place where all people, no matter what, could connect and learn and grow and love and be loved. It was about following Jesus where he led. And following Jesus meant serving the poor not stepping over the Lazaruses at our gates on our way to do what we want to do. What about me, Scott? I don't know. What about you? I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm not here to give you 10 things to do and you'll have it all right. I'm not going to give you three secrets. I don't have any of that for you. I have a parable, a parable that stings, a parable that gut punches you, a parable that makes you say, maybe I am that rich guy. I don't know. I do have some questions. And I'm going to give them to you and then we're going to pray and you're going to go eat chicken or whatever it is you're going to eat. Here's some questions to ask yourself. You ask yourself these questions. I ask myself these questions. You ask yourself these questions, okay? Okay. How do I define success? By how much I have or how much I can give? How do I define success? It's a huge question. Here's another one. Do I assume those who are poor are lazy 
and those who are wealthy are hardworking? Do I assign morality to people based on what they drive and how they look and where they live? Do I assume that some people are lazy because they don't have a lot and some people are really good because they have a lot? Watch that, be careful. And the last one is do I ignore, who do I ignore and who do I pay attention to? As I go about my day, Basically, who am I stepping over? It's huge questions. Questions I wrestle with all the time. Questions I think Jesus wanted us to wrestle with. Questions that he asked in roundabout ways and closed it up and said, okay, go on with your day. Opening our eyes to seeing ourself as the purple-clothed, wealthy guy stepping over the Lazaruses in our life so we can get on with doing our stuff. I think God wants us to pause and really think through that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this story that still is a, it just stings. It's not about making us feel guilty. We might feel guilty. We might see some selfishness in our life. We might see some whining and complaining. We might forget that we live in a very prosperous nation. We might forget that even on our bad days and even when gas prices go up and food prices go up, we still have a tremendous amount of opportunities. We might forget that. We might be blind to people around us. That's all true. But God, I thank you that this story can come along and kind of wake us up. Throw the cold water of truth in our face. Cause us to reevaluate and say, whoa, how am I living here? Wait a minute. Am I following Jesus? Or do I just like a few things about Jesus? Am I following Jesus or am I just a fan of Christianity at some level? Father, I pray that you take a message like this, a story like this, a parable like this, and sting us. Because I know that that pain will root out some things in us that's unlike you. And then there's room to put in us things like you. And help us when we leave this place to not just see people at restaurants as just people, but see them as people who are loved, people who deserve our attention, our respect, people on the streets, people in restaurants, people at the malls, people at the stores, people we work with. God, may we see them as people and we love them and honor them and respect them and elevate them and make room for them. God, we may have fine linen and we may have luxurious food, but God, may we never, never, never ignore the Lazarus. Let this truth change us and set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Go. Have a wonderful afternoon. We'll see you.